But this morning I want to talk about betrayal. Uh, Betrayal is a type of wrongdoing that cuts very deep, doesn't it? I mean, uh, most of us will know what it is like to be treated badly by someone who we know doesn't like us and does not pretend to like us. You know, for example, the the bully at school who uh, just constantly picks on you or the person at work who is a thorn in the side and makes uh, life unbearable for you uh, to even front up at work each day. Or the neighbour who you kind of, uh, your acid valve in your esophagus kind of uh, opens up when you see the neighbour in the street because you know he or she will have something to complain to you about. Your grass is too long, the ball came over the fence, uh, that sort of stuff. But betrayal is much worse, isn't it? Because the person who betrays you is your friend. Uh, The person who does you wrong is the one whom you trusted. Uh, Like the friend at school, who you share your personal uh, and confidential secrets with, and then they go and tell that to the person who they know does not like you. Or your friend at work, who uh, joins in when there is when someone else is complaining about you in the tea room. Or that person who you've employed in your small business, the business that you've invested so much in and you've given that person a job, you've given them training, you've given them opportunity, then they leave, they start their own business and they take half your client base with them. Betrayal hurts. causes us to lose the ability to trust people. I have met people who say that they trust nobody and they isolate themselves from relationships because they've been deeply betrayed. It's even worse when it happens in family life. In the Old Testament, King David knew what it meant to be betrayed In Psalm 41, which you don't need to look up, but in Psalm 41, David speaks about the the way that his enemies have treated him, uh, the wrongdoing that has been inflicted upon him. But then listen to what he says in verse 9. He says, As if it's not enough that those who hate me have hurt me, In verse 9 he says, Even my close friend, whom I trusted, he who shared my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. It's like he's saying, My good trusted friend, the friend who I had around my home, the friend who I shared my life with and my food with, the person who I trusted has now gone and kicked me in the gut. Stab me in the back. And for David, the pain of that is worse than the pain of those who did not pretend to be his friend. And friends, it was this scripture from Psalm 41 that Jesus had on his mind 
that night that he shared that last Passover meal with his disciples. You might recall from last week when we looked at uh, John chapter 13 that uh, at this Passover meal that there was great tension. There was tension because Jesus had performed a task which was such a lowly task that his disciples were shocked. They were shocked that in the absence of a servant that Jesus, the teacher, the master, should take on the lowest role and wash the feet of his disciples. There was tension in the air. But then if you care to look at uh, verse 18, if you open up your Bibles at John chapter 13 on page 763, in John chapter 13 verse 18, the tension is now wound even tighter. Indeed, much more tight. Let me read to you from verse 18. Jesus says, I am not referring to all of you. I know those I have chosen, but this is to fulfil the scripture. He who shares my bread has lifted up his heel against me. I am telling you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am he. I tell you the truth. Whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me, and whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. After he had said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, I tell you the truth. One of you is going to betray me. Now here they are at what is the most intimate of spiritual meals, the Passover, where they celebrate the goodness of God in being a saviour, where they celebrate as close friends. But yet Jesus knows and he tells them that one of them who shares his bread is about to lift up his heel against him and betray him. Uh, to lift up your heel in Psalm 41 uh, may mean uh, to be like a, a, a horse or a mule about to kick. Now, we know who the betrayer is. Uh, and actually, Judas had already begun the betrayal. Uh, if you flip back to uh, the beginning of chapter 12, uh, Jesus was at his friend's house, at the house of Lazarus. Uh, Laz Lazarus lived in Bethany, and Lazarus's two sisters were Martha and Mary. And they were celebrating a, a meal there to celebrate the resurrection of Lazarus uh, when we're told that a, a woman... Uh, came and she poured a whole jar of very expensive perfume over the feet of Jesus and that Jesus allowed that to happen. Now, how did Judas feel about that? Well, have a look at uh, verse, verses 4 to 6. It says, But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth 
a year's wages. Now, was Judas concerned for the welfare of the poor? Well, he did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to whatever was put into it. Now, we can say there, see there that Jesus, Judas was already a betrayer, wasn't he? He was a betrayer because he was stealing money from the money bag. He was embezzling the money of his friends. They trusted him as treasurer, but he betrayed that trust. And he was angry that this perfume was allowed to be poured at Jesus' feet. He was angry not because he cared for the poor, but rather because he would have preferred for it to have been um, sold. Uh, if it had been sold, that would have given him more, more opportunity to embezzle more money. And so what we see here is that there has been this simmering disaffection that Judas had for Jesus. It's been simmering, but this was the event that caused that disaffection to now boil over. Uh, because uh, in Matthew's account, uh, in Matthew chapter 26, uh, we are told that after this incident, that Judas went immediately to the chief priests, to the enemies of Jesus, and he negotiated a deal. 30 pieces of silver, and I'll tell you when you can arrest him, where you can arrest him, in a way that's not going to cause too much fuss and difficulty for you guys. 30 pieces of silver, and I'll betray my friend. Now let's go back to uh, John 13. Jesus has said that one of the disciples would betray him. But in verse 22, the, the other disciples didn't have the foggiest idea who he was talking about. Uh, they, they, they had no idea who the betrayer was. And, and so can you now imagine the tension that was in that room? Because the disciples now realised that they could not trust each other. That one of them would betray. And they were reclining on their lounges around the table. Uh, the way it worked for a uh, Jewish Passover meal was that the table would be in the middle and around the table in kind of like a U-shape uh, would be these lounges and each lounge was long enough for three men to kind of recline into. Right? And as they reclined around their table you could cut the air with a knife because they stared at each other, we're told. They stared at each other in distrust. Who could it be? In verse 23, we are told that the disciple whom Jesus loved was reclining next to Jesus. Now, that's a, it's a little bit ambiguous, isn't it? The disciple whom Jesus loved uh, the only place where we hear that description of a disciple is in John's Gospel, and John uses it numerous times. And uh, it's uh, probable that the disciple whom Jesus loved was John himself. 
so he's not, uh, and there was a, that special uh, affection between the two men, special relationship. And so Peter, who was probably uh, thinking to himself, I better not open up my mouth again, he sort of nudges the disciple whom Jesus loved and says to him, you know, ask him who the betrayer is. And in uh, verse 26, Jesus answered uh, by saying, it is the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I have dipped it into the dish. Then dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, son of Simon. As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. What you're about to do, do quickly, Jesus told him. But no one at the meal understood why Jesus had said this to him. Jesus would hand over some bread. Judas would hand over a life. Now, the, disciples, the other disciples were still at a loss as to what was going on here. Uh, when, I don't think it's clear from the text as to whether or not uh, everybody present heard what Jesus said when he said that the one who I give this bread to, he is the betrayer. Uh, that could have been said privately to the disciple whom Jesus loved. But they certainly all heard it when uh, Jesus eyeballed Judas and said to him, what you are about to do, go and do it quickly. Now, you know, what did he mean? Uh, well, the, the other disciples uh, had no idea. Um, why would he say this to Judas? You know, was, Jesus, was Judas to, as treasurer, go and give some money to the poor? Was that what he was supposed to do? Well, we know different, don't we? He wasn't going to go and give money to the poor. He was going to go and do an act which had actually increased his own personal wealth by 30 pieces of silver. Or, or maybe he's going out to go and get some more food for the Passover meal. Well, we know for a fact that what Judas was about to do was actually going to provide the Passover lamb at the altar. Then in verse 30, in verse 30, as soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out and it was night. It's interesting that John points out, and it was night, isn't it? Uh, those, those words, those four words, are very powerful words. Very, very powerful. Um, why do you think that Jesus mentions, and it was night? Uh, in John's Gospel, light and darkness are very symbolic. They're very meaningful. Because they symbolise the difference between God and evil. Um, listen, for example, to something which Jesus said in John chapter 3, verses 19 to 20. He said, and this is, after, this is his conversation with Nicodemus. Uh, he says, This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. See, there's this, this uh, 
contrast between darkness and light. Jesus is the light. Uh, men reject the light because their deeds are evil. They prefer darkness. Uh, the Bible tells us that uh, behind the physical realities of life that there is another betrayal which has already taken place. Uh, the great betrayer is Satan. Satan is a betrayer. Satan is an angel of God who has rebelled against God, turned his back on God. And behind the physical realities of life, there is a spiritual warfare being conducted in the heavenlies. Now, we see this spiritual warfare, this spiritual reality in verse 27, where John can see it. John knows the spiritual reality that's going on behind this betrayal because he says, as soon as Judas took the bread... Satan entered into him. Uh, what does that mean? At the very least, it means that uh, you, know, you, you can see that there was this... Judas has crossed a line at this point <laughs> where, where, where he's taken that bread. Well, if you go back to verse 2, uh, we're told that the devil had already prompted Judas. Uh, literally in the Greek, is the... The devil had already put this idea into his heart. And Judas had chosen to follow. Judas chose to follow his own father. Now, I want to ask this question. Uh, is Judas somehow excused? Uh, could Judas say, well, look, uh, the devil made me do it? You think that's... A possibility. Some commentators have actually thought that. Well, friends, no, we all make our choices. Um, there are plenty of people who have been put under very severe uh, temptation by the evil one. Uh, think, of, think in the Old Testament. Who is the prime example in the Old Testament of someone who was presented with every possible temptation from Satan but said no who Ellen yeah I mean Job comes to my mind uh, Job was sorely tested but at every point he refused to turn his back on God um, we know from many examples in the Bible and indeed from our own experience of life and what we've observed in the lives of others that there are Countless people who have been sorely tempted by Satan because he is like a roaring lion who lurks. He wants to try to deceive, deceive us. Countless people who have been tempted in terrible ways by Satan, but they've said no. They've stood up to him. Uh, Jesus himself, uh, in the temptation in the wilderness, at every point, uh, refused to fall to Satan's temptation. But Judas had already shown his spiritual darkness when he did a deal for 30 pieces of silver. And now uh, he walked out into the darkness of the night. That same night when next he would greet Jesus with a kiss. 
This is an evil moment. Judas had been with Jesus for, for more than three years. Judas had been as one of the disciples, but you know what? He was never one of them. He was a thief. He was a liar. I say that he was a liar because in Matthew's account of the, this last Passover, when Jesus said that one of you will betray me, that each of the disciples, one by one, said, Surely not I, Lord, including Judas. Judas had the gall to eyeball Jesus and say to him, Surely not I, Lord, when he was already weighed down by 30 pieces of silver. He was a thief a liar, a betrayer. Now, sometimes, um, I think because we know that we too are sinful, that uh, you know, some people have said to me that they kind of sometimes feel a little bit sympathetic towards Ju Judas. I think it's interesting to tease that out and ask that question, you know, should we feel sympathy for Judas? And uh, the conclusion I come to is no, uh, that we ought not to. And I'll tell you why. Um, in Matthew chapter 27, after Jesus was condemned to death, Judas was aware of that. He could see the consequences of his betrayal and we are told that he was overcome by remorse that he was uh, uh, filled with a sense of guilt now that's a good thing isn't it he should have been overcome by remorse he should have been filled with a sense of his a profound sense of his guilt that is good that is right that is appropriate and at that point what are his options? What are the options of any sinner when they are overcome by the knowledge and the heartfelt sense of their own guilt before God? What are the options? Well, there are options. I mean, in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, the Apostle Paul says that godly sorrow leads to repentance. See, there is a difference between sorrow and repentance. Uh, it is all very well to feel sorry for the things which we might have done and to grieve those things, to even weep over those things. But the question always is, where does that sorrow lead? Does it lead to self-pity and despair or does it lead to turning back to God. Now you'd have to say that that's an option for Judas. At that point he could have actually humbled himself, uh, confessed his sin to Almighty God and pleaded for forgiveness. I mean there are other examples uh, of people that have done heinous sin to Jesus and have been forgiven. Uh, there were soldiers who were there at the crucifixion 
perhaps even the soldiers who nailed the nails into Jesus' wrist and his, and his feet, who we know were forgiven. Uh, there were many priests in Jerusalem who, after the, uh, the, the death of Jesus on the cross, turned, back to, turned to Jesus and were forgiven. There was one man who so hated Jesus that he made it his life's ambition to do whatever he could to destroy uh, anybody who uh, followed Jesus, have him arrested, have him killed. His name was Saul. Uh, there was one man who had been with Jesus for three and a half years who denied three times that he even knew the man. And yet all of these people turned back to God and sought his forgiveness and were forgiven. But this was not the nature of Judas's remorse. Judas's remorse did not lead to repentance. Rather, he went to the temple, he chucked back his 30 pieces of silver and then he went and hung himself. He wouldn't face God. He just decided to end his very life. And in Acts chapter, chapter 1, verse 25, uh, when they were selecting a replacement apostle, uh, Peter says that uh, Judas went to where he belongs. Where do you think Judas belongs? He belongs with his own father. Uh, Satan, the one who he followed, in hell. In hell. Now, the betrayal of Judas, I think, um, and the this, the it, it, we can actually learn some helpful things about God uh, from it. And one of the things which we learn is that it helps us to understand how it is that God works for our good. You see, and we see this at a couple of levels, that the disciples were like a team, weren't they? Now, think of yourself. Do you play for a sporting team or have you played for a sporting team in the past? Think of what it's like in a sporting team where you enjoy this camaraderie, this sense of loyalty, this sense of purpose, this goal of being victorious together and this unity, but then one of your key players decides to quit the team and go and sign up as the star recruit for the team that you have been most opposed to, your greatest rival. And what does that do to morale? Well. For the team members who remain, that can be devastating. That can really rattle their confidence uh, in the team, especially if the defector uh, leaves in a, in a way which is highly critical of the, of the coach or the captain. And, and those who remain can start to wonder whether or not they're on the right team. Maybe there's something wrong with our team. Maybe we shouldn't be part of this team either. Maybe we should go as well. In verse 19, there is a reason Jesus told the disciples about the betrayal before it happened. 
Jesus knew that the betrayal and the persecution which would follow would greatly rattle the disciples and that they would wonder, are we on the right side? But Jesus told them in advance so as to firm up their faith, to firm up their faith. And he says to them, look, you know, if anyone accepts you, then they accept me. And if anyone accepts me, then they accept the Father. So he's, confer- he's reminding them that there is a direct connection between following Jesus and following God the Father. If you stick with, uh, with your faith, then you are connected to God the Creator. He affirms that for them. He reminds them of that. But by telling them about betrayal in advance, later on, when they looked back, they would be able to see that it was not the case that Jesus was simply the victim of terrible circumstances, that it was not the case that God had somehow lost control, that it was not the case that they were believing something which was false, but they would actually see that in all of this, God knew exactly what was going to happen and that God was in control. Uh, That is uh, important in terms of the uh, arrest and the death of Jesus. Friends, that's also important in other aspects of our lives where sometimes things are not working out the way that we would hope, but we know that if we're connected with God, that God is in control, that God knows what's going on in our lives. But the betrayal by Judas was an evil high point for Satan. Um, Think about it. Nothing could please Satan more than to to see this treachery against God the Son. Nothing more except perhaps one thing, that cry from the cross, when God the Son cries out saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? For Satan, that was his moment. That was his moment of victory. That was his moment of glory. That was the moment that he had been working towards ever since he left Jesus in the temptations in the wilderness to look for an opportune time. He thought that was the climax. This was his point of victory, the the culmination of his betrayal against his God. But friends, God in his great wisdom and power always knew the plan of Satan And God took that evil plan of Satan and he weaved that evil plan into God's good plan to bring about God's good end purpose, which is to pay for sin so that sinners can be forgiven. A thief, a liar, a betrayer, now in hell. Uh, That is the Bible's portrayal of Judas. Now, um, as I reflected on this passage during the week, I I was struck by another truth that might have occurred to you before, but it hadn't occurred to me before. 
and that is that the the character this the, the the sinful character of Judas uh, shows us an aspect of the suffering of Jesus, uh, which I personally had not realised um, prior to this week. A and it's got to do with, with what life was like for Jesus over those three years. Now think about uh, this, put it into your own situation. Uh, if, you belong to a group, if you belong to a group of friends or a group of people who, uh, who ought to be friends but you in fact knew that one of them was a false friend, that you had information that that person had done something evil behind your back to you, what would that be like for you? It's the sort of thing that uh, changes the, the dynamics of that group, isn't it? Uh, it, would, it would put you on edge. It would mean that you, you couldn't relax, that you couldn't open up, that, because you couldn't trust. And that can be very stressful. Uh, it can make life very uncomfortable. Uh, some of you may know that in your own extended family groups, uh, that that is the case. I, I think about it sometimes from a church leadership uh, point of view because I, I, know, uh, I, I know too many godly, faithful church leaders who face this day by day, week by week, month by month, sometimes year after year, uh, because they will know that, uh, uh, that even though they're part of a church, and we'll learn what Jesus says about church in the next couple of weeks, about how you should, uh, a new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another as I have loved you. Uh, there are church leaders who know that there are people in their congregation who actually don't love them. Sometimes they greatly dislike the church leader and uh, I've seen situations where people have been working under the radar to uh, uh, disaffect others and to uh, cause problems for that church leader's reputation and to damage their ministry. Uh, and we, we see this time and time again. And it's not... Um, it's not unusual. I mean, Jesus tells us that we ought to expect that sort of thing to happen. Um, the Apostle Paul in his ministry, uh, particularly amongst the Corinthian church, uh, suffered this greatly uh, by those who uh, he describes as being the super apostles. It's a form of suffering which, uh, which you need to experience in order to uh, appreciate and the reason I mention this is because in John chapter 6, verse 64, uh, we are told explicitly that Jesus knew from the beginning who would betray him. Now, we know that because Jesus is all-knowing, uh, we would expect that he would know who would betray. But John in chapter 6 points this out, that Jesus knew all along what was going to happen and who was going to do it. So imagine what that's like for him. Uh, not only did he suffer rejection and persecution from those who were his avowed enemies, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, uh, the Pharisees, not only was he dealing with that almost constantly, but for three years, constantly he was living with that tension 
of basically living with a betrayer. Some who was all face. Someone who said, I, you know, I would never betray you, but who already had lined his pockets. Jesus was prepared to put up with that because out of his love, he did it for us. He knew that uh, Satan's evil intention would be used by God to bring about our salvation. He knew it would lead to the cross. There's been a lot of talk about betrayal lately, hasn't there? Have you noticed that in the media? You think, well, betrayal, there's nothing new about that in the media. It's in the media all of the time. But I'm talking about WikiLeaks. WikiLeaks. Now, I don't know what you think about WikiLeaks. Um, some people think it's absolutely marvellous that uh, you know, governments are now being held accountable other people think it's dangerous. Other people think it's just no one's business. Whatever you think about WikiLeaks, you've got to say this, there's been a lot of betrayal going on, hasn't there? <laughs> uh, there have been government employees who have signed confidentiality agreements who have anonymously handed over hundreds of thousands of uh, government documents, confidential documents, uh, some which are probably just plain boring, uh, some of which uh, people say are just very embarrassing, uh, some of which people say may endanger people's lives, some of which people say will just keep governments accountable. Um, to some, Julius, Julian Assange uh, is a hero. Uh, to others, He's a terrorist. Uh, some think that he should be named Australian of the Year. Others think he should be in prison. One Canadian politician publicly said that prison was actually too good for him. Uh, we need a worse punishment for him. And now, of course, there is betrayal even against WikiLeaks. Have you noticed that? Uh, there, there are disaffected WikiLeaks workers, uh, some of who, whom have now sabotaged WikiLeaks's computer system. Uh, others, insiders, who have now released confidential WikiLeaks documents to the public, outlining the uh, conflicts you know, within that organisation. Uh, there's now one of them has betrayed Julian Assange and he has now gone and set up a rival website called OpenLeaks. We'll see how that one goes. Uh, Julian Assange has written a, a book about his life. It's probably going to be turned into a movie and I think that there may very well even be a sequel to the movie <laughs> because there's more of that life to be lived. I don't know about you, but I've, I, I've actually found the um, betrayals to be far more interesting than the actual documents. And the great debate, of course, is whether or not anything good can come from those betrayals. The word betray means to hand over. WikiLeaks hands over secrets. But Judas 
handed over a life. Satan meant that for evil, but God in his wisdom used that for his good. To pay for sins so that sinners can be forgiven. So we ought to thank and praise God for his great mastery over the affairs of the world, even his mastery over the affairs of the evil one, that he's able to do this for us. And we thank God for Jesus, that he willingly suffered betrayal because he loved us. And in response to that, we ought to hand our lives over to Jesus in gratitude, in trust, and in obedience. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your uh, great wisdom, your wisdom that takes that which is evil and uses it to accomplish your good pleasure and purpose. We pray for ourselves that as Jesus allowed himself to be handed over for our salvation, that uh, you would give us such a rich appreciation of that sacrifice that uh, we would uh, see no other option other than to hand our lives over to loving and serving you. We pray that you would help us as a church to be united in serving one another, in helping one another uh, to do that very thing. We ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.